Welcome to the Gather Global Podcast. And today we have a very interesting guest, Chris Heatherman from Adidas Golf. And Chris is currently the head of marketing for Europe, Middle East and Africa. But I also have a very exciting new co-host for this episode, James Summerside from Golf Breaks and Double Plateau Golf Club. James, you've known Chris for a number of years. You used to work together as well. What was your biggest takeaway from this conversation? Yeah, hi, John. Um, yeah, it was it was great actually. It was nice to to speak to Chris again to see where he's taken the Adidas brand since taking over as head of marketing following the uh, the split between TaylorMade and Adidas. And you can see uh, not only how Chris got into that role with it, with the passion that he has and the skills he's learned along the way, but how he's actually taken them on and implemented those that that sort of new and modern thinking into running a marketing department which is a big role and a scary role and sort of doing what everybody's always done and to his credit and the team's credit you know looking from the outside in they've had some real great success there so really interesting conversation and people will learn a lot from you know not only how Chris has developed his own skills to, to take on that role but then how he's implemented them uh, and how he's gone about learning and bettering himself and the, the department over recent years too. There's a lot of absolute nuggets in this conversation about leadership and leaders that are listening to this in the golf industry that they can learn from about the people who are coming up through the industry ranks and looking to learn, looking to have opportunities and looking to pitch new ideas. Some brilliant listening here. Hope you enjoy. Chris, it's really good to have you on. Pleasure to be here. Pleasure to be here with you both. And we are going to jump right in because the first question, as our regular listeners will know, is we like to ask, what would you like to change about the golf industry? But you can't. And we're hoping that you have a firecracker of an answer ready for us. Big pressure, early doors. Yeah, do you know what? It's multifaceted, but I would say overall, the overarching kind of umbrella I'd put it under is stereotypes. If I could change stereotypes, I feel like it would it would have a, a huge impact. And and what I mean by stereotype is is kind of a historical thing which has become a, a modern day issue in our sport. And I'll give you a, a kind of a reference point. You know, we're we're in a sport that, that that's steeped in heritage and history and and authenticity and all those things, but it's also steeped in stereotypes. And a lot of those can be quite negative. And that's a real frustration for someone like me that's played the game from a young age and has and loved the game, but it becomes frustrated how it's limited by what the external audience see of that and the stereotypes attached to it. So an example, a perfect example, I was sat um, watching terrestrial TV a, a few weeks back and uh, with my wife and we watched uh, an, an episode of uh, Rob Beckett and Ramesh Ranganathan and they tried something new out and they went and played golf and they went up to St. Andrews and they were trying golf for the first time. I thought, how great is this that we've got two kind of comedians that are modern and I suppose diverse in their thinking coming to play our game. And they went up to, to play golf and it was shown in a great light. They, I think they played in the, they were trying to play in the Pro-Am at the BMW PGA, but they went up to Scotland to play at the home of golf and they went and got dressed for golf. And what did they do? They put on, Argyle patent polo shirts and they put on silly trousers and they said, well, this is what you've got to do to wear to play golf, right? And I thought to myself, no, that's not what you do to play golf. Fast forward another week and I was watching, you know, you have to forgive me for my taste in TV, but I was watching Ant and Deck Saturday Night Takeaway one evening and they did a, a thing, an Ant versus Deck, and they did a golf thing. 
And Ant and Deck are both golfers, by the way, and, and they did a golf challenge. And what did they do to represent golf? They dressed up in Argyle jumpers and silly clothes. And I thought to myself, why is it that is in, in this day and age, we still find people represent the game of golf by dressing to stereotype and, and dressing almost like a bit stupid, really. It's, it's almost like a, a dressing like a clown to play golf. And if you applied that to other sports, you know, if, if Ant and Deck were doing a tennis challenge, would they wear um, long trousers and a tweed top like they would wear, would have worn back in the day playing that sport? And I thought to myself, no, the same if they did a rugby challenge, would they wear big leather boots halfway up their shins with a cotton jersey and, and you know, um, shorts that are made from a material that isn't have any stretch? No, they wouldn't. They would wear the modern visual representation of the game and therefore I thought long and hard why is it that there's still these stereotypes attached to our game that actually become a barrier for people watching it because that captive audience that were watching those two programs that have maybe ever considered playing golf will still watch that and go oh golf is still that sport where you have to wear silly trousers and silly tops and in a game that is um, so vastly difficult to master and can be time consuming, can be expensive at times, why we still put this barrier in place of, of what you have to wear to play the game. And you can hear me talk about this a bit throughout uh, this, uh, I'm sure, and how we'll have conversations about it. But those stereotypes of what you've got to look like, how you've got to dress, how you've got to behave, um, all of those things are the things that I would love to change about our sport. And I can't because they're, they're so ingrained. They're so ingrained in that sport of golf and what it represents that it's going to take a huge amount of time and a huge amount of effort to change them. And, you know, I think we all have a part to play in changing them, but that would be the thing. If I could change it, it would be those stereotypes. Completely agree with you because I think we've seen it quite a lot, probably in the last five, 10 years. And anyone that knows me will know I am not a fashion person with any um, note of style in my body. And I rely on my wife to to help me choose my clothes. Um, but from a golf perspective, you do see some people who are in the sport already who sort of dress in the old stuff in a, in a kind of a hip, kind of fashionable sort of way. So on one hand, that's kind of cool because they're sort of going, well, I actually think some of that stuff, those clothes that were made years ago are actually quite cool and maybe they're coming around again and being fashionable. But then on the flip side, the negative thing is that people who don't play the sport see that especially if they're famous people with a platform like the ones you've described. And then that kind of actually might have a negative connotation because they're not looking at it and going, that's quite stylish clothes from 50 years ago. They're kind of going, ah, yeah, of course, that's what you need to wear when you play golf. So it's a bit of a kind of contradiction, isn't it? Uh, absolutely. And, and, and it's funny because things have modernised and we don't wear, you know, crazy tweed or argyle all the time now. And to your, you're right, there is some people that have got their own fashion taste where they're they're flipping the script and bringing that back as a fashion thing but it's you know there's also some people that have had that in their wardrobe for 50 years and still wear it right um and don't realize they're being fashionable but i think the point is is that it has moved on it, you know we do see a huge amount of athletic product in in our sport and yet it's still famed for something that was 50 years ago and, and that's the challenge you know of kind of how do we update that mentality around this idea of golf but I do think there's a lot of things that where, where people just conform to that stereotype. And young, 
we, I see it in young golfers all the time. They conform to a stereotype because that's what's expected of them to be a golfer, even with that kind of slightly more modern aesthetic. We did a photo shoot. I won't name the player, but we did a photo shoot with a, a, someone that was coming out of England golf. And we had this guy, um, we wanted to kind of do a test shoot around some product. And we said, just be yourself, like style yourself. He came out, hat on backwards, pair of shorts, shirt untucked. We had him on the top of a golf buggy hitting balls. He was biting his driver. He loved every minute of it. He was, I'm going to say he's in his uh, late teens, early 20s. And he then was playing golf after the shoot and his mates turned up to play golf with him. And he walked inside and he got changed and he came back out and he had trousers, shirt tucked in, cap on front, way around. And I was like, whoa, what happened there? What, what happened? Which, which one was the re real you? Like you, you seem to love it when you were being able to just be completely yourself and hit a drive off the top of a buggy with your hat on backwards and your shorts on, your shirt untucked. But as soon as you went to play golf, you know, a light switch went off and you're, oh, God, no, I can't actually do that when I play golf, 18 holes with my mates. I need to conform and look like a golfer. And if you look on tour, that, that's, that's, you know, that is, it's everywhere you look. Everyone that comes through the game, whatever age they are, even the young players that you'd expect to maybe have a slightly different take on or want to express themselves differently, still conform to polo shirt, trousers, looking the same way, kind of repetition of each other, which amazes me. And you know, Eric Van Royen gets some stick for wearing cuff trousers. Look at the stick he gets. He's one guy that has a slightly different expression of the way he wants to look on course and gets you know, ridiculed for it. So it's, it's fascinating what we've done in stereotype has almost uh, created robots in the way people look on course. It's, it's the weird hypocrisy of golf as well that you know you can walk into a clubhouse with uh, waterproofs that are 50 years old covered in mud but they're golf attire so that's fine but you can't walk into that same clubhouse with a pair of like brand new dark denim jeans and a white shirt like that, that's not golf so that you know they're jeans you can't come into our clubhouse in them. Chris when you and I used to work together back at Termain Adidas and we had a player that was actually staying in the clubhouse at one of sort of UK's most prestigious golf clubs um, and went down to get some dinner uh, after he'd done his photo shoot in the day and was wearing brand new out of the box white golf shoes with a spikeless you know on course off course thing never seen a golf course um, and otherwise was dressed very smartly and despite at the time playing on the European tour and staying at their venue, wasn't allowed to uh, to go down in the evening uh, for a burger and sit in the bar because that wasn't deemed sort of suitable for the clubhouse. Yet had he walked in in battered brogues that were, you know, falling apart at the seams and, you know, red chinos, he'd have been absolutely fine, which is just, it's a confusing, uh, confusing dichotomy that one's okay and one's not. Exactly. And, and the funniest thing about, I mean, we'll probably come on to this later on, but the funniest thing about it all is what happens to people if you wear a, a some, you know, you know, you break a dress code, nothing happens. You know, uh, people can say they're offended by it, but there's no physical outcome to, <laughs> to someone wearing something that's not quite by the rules. You know, I can understand if someone wore the wrong shoes and walked into the clubhouse and all the, um, the clubhouse set on fire, then yeah, absolutely. Don't wear those shoes in here because they set the clubhouse. On fire. <laughs> but my point is nothing happens. So it's all in the individual mindset of a committee or a, you know, a management or, or, an, an ideal that's been passed on down through the ages of what 
isn't isn't acceptable and, and i see this all the time where people go oh we're very we're very very forward now we're allowing people to wear jeans and they can wear trainers and that's great well done i completely commend that and i think that's great however we still ask people to take their hats off in the clubhouse why why do people need to take their hats off in the clubhouse what why is that so offensive that someone's got hats on i could not care less if someone wears a hat on around me it might be because they've had a bad hair day it might be because they're trying to stop themselves getting burnt it might be just because they like the look of wearing a hat but it still amazes me that even when we get to a place where we're talking about being more progressive we still have this drawback but however please you know please don't wear spikes in, in the clubhouse. Why? For what reason? What happens? So, you know, I, I, I'm still amazed by people when they try to, to be progressive. And a lot of clubs are doing it, and I commend them for that. It's still amazing that we still have these drawbacks, these little things that we just can't let go of. We just start, can't seem to let go of, and it's crazy. If I owned a golf club, I would certainly rather have hats on people in the clubhouse than no people in the clubhouse. But the thing that always amazes me is when you go to... Uh, very not something I'm able to do very often, but you go to a very wealthy golf resort, places where millionaires and billionaires might frequent, and they will walk in wearing ripped jeans and flip-flops in the front door, and there's not a possibility that the staff will ever go up to them and say, you can't come in here wearing this stuff. And I'm like, so, so why, why does a small private members club on the outskirts of Glasgow, for example, think that they should be putting barriers in place when these places aren't. So if we were to spin this round then and think about, and we're going to come on to some of the things that you've been doing with your work as well, which we're really interested in. But if we were to just like spitball some solution focused stuff here, because there's many people in the industry that feel the same way about this. How about an interesting experiment? Should we get one of the major tours to do a casual dress event? And we just tell the players for the whole event, you just wear whatever you want. And then we see what the dress has, and then we let all the people watch it and see if that, you know, does something for the promotion of the, I mean, you could even do a casual work Friday. I mean, other, other places do that. So on a Friday, the players can wear whatever they want. And yeah, of course, I guess they have to have their sponsors and stuff, but they could put their sponsors on a Hawaiian shirt. They could put their sponsors on a, a vest top. They can put it on the other side of a cap so they can put their cap back to front. They can have them on the flip flops. I mean, can you imagine all the stuff that players would probably do, you know? And yeah. just some, something like that might, might be quite an interesting experiment, but we, we definitely need to, it, it almost seems like at certain levels at the top of the game, people are wearing some slightly different things. So, so stuff's sort of okay in that area of the industry, but down at grassroots level and club level, how many people do we still hear seeing this stuff? And Sam Roach, that was on the last podcast, this was exactly what he talked about from a personal perspective. And then also what he's been observing from outside the industry for a while now, you know, he, he talked about linking these things with the fashion, also with the heritage of the sport, which I think was a really important point. You know, there is every sport has their heritage that they're proud of. And in particular golf, that's something that's very, very strong, but you know, to promote sort of something like football to young people, you don't go and show them here's the old room you do to an extent, but you don't do it all over. You know, you don't splash all your heritage all over your website. You don't have pages and pages of text telling you about the history of the golf club with all black and white photos and stuff. Like that doesn't really inspire many people. Yes. Have it somewhere. But, you know, it's front and centre in golf in a lot of places when in actual fact it just maybe needs to be taking a back seat. Would you agree with that? 100%. Um, and there's a couple of points there you made uh, that, that I'd speak to. One is I completely agree with you. What if we took away all the rules on something like a tour? Well, interestingly, I think still people would 
would end up dressing the same way because they've they've been brainwashed, right? They've been brainwashed and conformed to this is what you have to look like to be a professional golfer. I mean, look, even at the the lower level of, of professional golf, men are still aren't allowed to wear shorts. Absolutely absurd. Like, what type of rule in the, in the 21st century, in 2021, the world that we're living in, and we're still saying you can't wear shorts, you can't have a beard, you can't you can't have an earring, you can't have a tattoo. I mean, it's absolutely absurd um, that we're stipulating that these people can't do these things. So, and then because of those rules, I think people have got so used to right. I'm a golfer, blinkered. I have to be like this. And if someone tries to break that mold, everyone goes, whoa, hang on a second, points them. What, what's that crazy person doing? I've said Eric Van Royen, Camille Vajegas did it back in the day with tight fitting. You know, Tiger did it with mock necks. But if Tiger turned up at your golf course back then, were you going to stop him coming on because he had a mock neck on? No, you weren't. Same with Tyrrell Hatton and Hoodie. Are you going to stop Tyrrell Hatton coming on your golf course uh, because he's got a hoodie on? You wouldn't. So why are you stopping other people coming on your golf course with that on? So I think there's, there's, a, there's an issue there. Um, and then to your other point around, yeah, like the heritage side of things, you know, I, I respect the heritage of a game and I lived my life as a golfer and, and I love all of the heritage that comes with it, but in the right place in the right time. And I always use Wimbledon as an example. Wimbledon is a tournament that's steeped in heritage and history as, as historic as it gets from a tennis point of view. And they have a rule around white, right? They, that's their heritage. It's white. But people can still wear modern clothing that's white. And okay, at times it was pushed to a boundary where, you know, Rafa Nadal didn't wear any sleeves or Serena Williams wore a white catsuit or whatever it was. And they went, oh, okay, hang on. That, that's kind of getting too close to our boundaries. But there's people not being told, oh, you have to wear trousers or you have to cover up this or you have to do that. Whereas in our sport, we're still doing that. And that if you, you know, you have to wear trousers to play golf in profession, men's professional, it's, it, it's crazy. So I think we're, we're stuck so much on heritage and we're so scared of what losing that might mean for our sport, but we'll never lose it because tournaments are steeped in heritage. The game is in itself has got heritage. And, and just like in football, you look back at historic moments, hand of God, and all those things that have happened in the sport. And that is the heritage of the sport. You can't take that away. They're burnt into people's memories forevermore. And so therefore, I think there's just a fear and, and, and an undue fear in golf that, oh, but if we change this, what will our game turn into? It won't turn into anything. It will just get more people interested in it. It'll be a better place. So it's going to take a lot, but I completely agree. I think we've got to lose that fear and and that concern of what our game might become. Because trust me, I believe the game will just become a better game if we if we take some of those restrictions off it. Yeah, it's confusing as well and topical with the Olympics just to come into a close. And I remember previously when the Olympics was first in, or golf was first in the Olympics, there's a lot of discussion around what counts as golf equipment. And gloves is a really interesting topic where sort of national organisations like Great Britain, I think, was sponsored by Adidas at the time. So their players had to wear Adidas kit and the US was another sort of example of this where they were having to wear Nike, but they had, let's say, FootJoy ambassadors on their staff team. Um, and they were arguing sort of vehemently that the glove was such a core part of their technical equipment that they should be allowed to wear their non-Nike or non-Adidas glove to fit with their contractual obligations of their main sponsor. So they're willing to go tooth and nail when a, a sponsor or, a, a, you know, a a manufacturer or whoever it is is involved and pushing them in that direction to say, look, I really need this kit. But to your point, Chris, agree entirely. Like there's no way that trousers are more of a beneficial piece of golf equipment than shorts and why that's logically, you know, you must wear one and not the other. It's very, 
and, and frustratingly, it does it does sort of suggest something we'll come on to later with regards to the hoodie that you touched on is that you know some of this change, unfortunately, may have to come from the big manufacturers like yourselves saying, hey, this is now okay. Because when when those companies do that, the rest of the industry tends to fall in line. Whereas if you get 20, uh, 20 young men and women all wearing a certain thing and going to the local courses, unfortunately, that bottom up change. It just doesn't happen. You know, I remember wearing a, when Jesper Parnovic was a thing when I was a kid, trying to wear the backwards Kangol hat. And like somebody marched across two fairways at Blackpool North Golf Club and told me to turn my effing hat around. Like I was a 10 year old kid. Like, who, who, you know, to your point, Chris, the course wasn't setting on fire. So until, or not until, I think manufacturers and companies like yourselves are doing this now with Adidas, it feels like for, for real change to happen in this space, it's almost got to come top down with the support of these, these, uh, financial backers and, and sponsors because you know one or two people on their own it'll work really well on instagram and they'll get a nice little following but it's not going to create the mass change that i think a lot of us would like to see yeah and the interesting one will be whether i spotted the other day and um, i think it was an american beer company something on linkedin and they'd done an advert with phil with his calf muscles and the glasses that look, look exactly like his calf muscles from the back and i was like well you know they wouldn't be ever they wouldn't have that advertising opportunity if he wasn't now wearing his shorts and all the practice rounds so you just think imagine there's another next level they could go to if they're allowed to wear shorts in actual tournaments so um well you know uh, we we have a, a topic, Chris, or a question that we always ask, our section that we always talk about in the podcast, which is called the elephant in the room. And it's something that we talk about quite a lot in gatherings. Like, let's try and bring those elephant in the room topics and discussions to the table and stop sort of skirting around them. Now, you might think that we've actually dug right into one for a good 15, 20 minutes there, which was amazing. But there's another area too, and it's kind of relative to what you guys are doing at Adidas now. Um, James, you touched on it a moment ago. So obviously, you know, Adidas, massive global brand. And as Adidas Golf, you've now been doing various collaborations with new sort of independent or smaller brands. And I guess for us and for some of the people that work in the industry, that would be seen as potentially quite a big risk. So is there an element of risk in doing these? And why are these kind of collaborations important for a brand of your scale to do? Yeah, Um Funnily enough, thinking about it, as, as you say it out loud there, Colin, it's, is there a risk? I mean, you could argue there's, a, there's an element of risk in anything you do, right? But without sounding cliche, uh, genuinely, no. There, there, there is no risk there in a sense of we're collaborating with partners and we're, we're setting out guidelines from the start of what we want to achieve together. Uh, and it truly is a collaboration in, in every sense of the word. And we're making sure that we're aligned strategically on, on what we're trying to achieve. And you know, to name a few that you're probably referencing, you know, we kicked things off a few years back when we, we collaborated with Palace. And that came around from uh, Lev Tanju, the owner of Palace, is, is a mad keen golfer. You know, he's got this incredible uh, streetwear skateboarding brand, but he's a golfer. He loves golf. Um, and, and that was his passion to get involved in golf. And we wanted to work with him. And that product was was niche. And it was you know, set a lot of eyeballs rolling and tongues uh, wagging around what type of product we brought there. But ultimately, what we're trying to do, whether it's with Palace or the recent one we've just done with the, with the guys at Manners, um, with Jojo and Luke, that we, we had a vision of how do we appeal to what we refer to as the network in golf, the network of golf consumers. You have a, a core golf consumer out there that plays two or three times a week, that follows the tour, that, you know, 
watches every YouTube video going on golf. And we, of course, have a job in trying to connect with those people. But we also know that there's there's more than that out there. There's this network of golfers that are sporadic in, in how often they play, when they play, members, non-members, top golf, nine holes, 18 holes, crazy golf. Who knows? There's a touch point with all of them. And we saw a huge amount of those people come to our game through the pandemic. And therefore, one of the, the reasons we collaborate with partners like that is to reach those golfers and, and to what we've just spoken about. Those golfers that are conforming to a certain way of dressing, they want to know this, there's things out there that align with what they want to look like and, and how they want to behave. And that's where those collaborations and, and why we activate those collaborations, because we want to say to people, if you don't feel like this is you to, to wear a polo shirt tucked in and, you know, your tour specific golf shoes and look and behave like a golfer, but you like the idea of playing golf, then come and wear our product. And we're a global sportswear brand that makes products for the golfer in terms of functionality and technology, but also in terms of style. But first of all, we're a sports brand. So these collaborations really speak to niche audiences. They speak to people that like to look a certain way. And specifically with the one with Manners recently, that was a concept around this idea of what if golf was the national sport of our country and not football during a time where football fever was going on. And, you know, we got lucky. Me and uh, Jojo from, from Manners were sitting there watching the England and Germany game thinking, we hope England win this because our whole plan around talking about the beautiful game would be slightly undone if they get knocked out. But it worked for us. And I think it at that moment in time, it showcased what we wanted. And we held an event at the Grove who were great because they don't have a dress code and they were they were all about kind of bringing this this event to life and we had due to uh, restrictions we had about 45 people there playing this event there was no dress code you could dress what you like you come as you like and we showcased some of the product there and there was a moment we had a situation afterwards where we did a kind of a final with a knockout stage and we had 40 people with drinks in hand going out to watch this straight shootout between the top four pairs and the sun was setting, people laughing and joking. And there was a real moment for me. And I took a stand back and I had a look at it. And I thought, this is what golf should be about. There was music, there was laughter, there was fun. There was people dressed however they wanted to dress. They, no, one, no one looked awful. No one was in a string, string vest and, and jean shorts. Um, but they had their own take on what they want to look like a golfer that day. And we had an amazing time. We had an amazing event. And, and it was, you know, I thought to myself, this is the future of golf then this is the future of golf that I'd want to be involved in. So I think it, to answer your question and go back to it again, it, I think it, it also opens your own mindset when you work with, with other brands and you see the different types of audiences they talk to and you see the different types of consumers that they engage with. It makes you realize there's so much more out there than just the core audience, as valuable as they are and as, as important as they are. And we'll continue to, to consider them and everything we do, that there is this wider network that we need to appeal to. And that's why we work with those on those types of collaborations. And how's the, I guess, how's the reception been from, not necessarily the core audience, but the core retailers, I guess, in golf? Certainly, I'm not sure if these numbers are still correct, but it used to always be the case going back a couple of years ago where it's pretty much 50-50 between, um, you know, Greengrass retail and then big box retail, American golf, et cetera. Um, obviously, e-com platforms like the ones you guys have got open another channel for that. But have have general retailers been receptive to, to what you guys are doing or have they said you know what we're going to we'll still just stop the adidas crested polo shirts let them go and do that on their recon business and, and keep the two things separate yeah i think there's a there's never changing face of golf retail right so 
and actually doing a partnership with something like collaboration with something like Manners, where it was only sold through Manners. Um, we didn't actually resell it on our own e-com platform. We let them sell the product because it was more of a positioning for us and a, a conversation for us. So it didn't really impact golf retail. There is other collaborations where there's some very progressive golf retailers that say, hey, how can we get hold of that product? Because that's absolutely where we want to play and the type of consumer we're targeting as well. And it's difficult because it can be restricted by the brand. And, you know, we have to play within the guidelines of what those collaborative partners want to do as well. But I suppose to, to answer your point, the ever-changing face of golf retail means that there is lots of different opportunities depending on where you want to play. Do you want to target your, your membership, your core golfer, your different consumer, you know, break that out by age range or style, whatever you want to do. And, and I would say mo most kind of green grass golf pros wouldn't really know or care what we're doing with a collaboration with Manners or Palace because that's not their consumer. However, some of the more digital online platforms are obviously that is something they would be interested and involved with. So, you know, I would say it's kind of horses for courses and that's fine. That's great. I think it's all about, you know, understanding your consumer, picking your lane and therefore providing the product for them. So, yeah, it, it certainly wasn't one that upset golf retail, I would say, in, in, in the general sense. It was just seen as something that, hey, those crazy, crazy guys at Adidas Golf are doing crazy stuff again. <laughs> And do you think there, do you think the I mean hopefully you know if, if we follow this train down down the road hopefully that will become the norm you know you know all the stuff we're talking about now would be great to see you know at golf courses uh, on golf course shop I think that personally my opinion is that that will take some change from uh, how shops are run you know on site on golf courses and and uh, how they've been um, built over over time. Do you think you'll see a world in which you know you'll go into your local sort of pro shop on on course and start to see some of these collabs because more people will get it, or do you think this this split between sort of quote unquote traditional golf stuff and uh, new golf stuff again for for want of a better phrase will we'll stay will stay a split and and will be done directly through brands like yourself and partnerships, um, or do you think they'll come together with with the on course retailers? I think uh, it's, it's difficult to predict. If I was a betting man, I'd say I think they'll stay separate because of the types of audience you have in those places. You know, I, I was talking to a retailer recently, a golf pro um, locally to me, and they I was up there playing golf and they said to me, oh, uh, it's amazing how the golf clubs change through lockdown. We've got all these new members and they're great and they're young. And he, and he said, oh, I think one of them is your, your neighbour who who you live next door to and he said oh he always comes down here and he's always got adidas gear and he looks great and that's because i'm you know looking after him and getting him some gear but i said to him i was like what about have you ever thought about stocking that type of product in your shop so that my neighbor and the friends that he plays with comes and buys the product from you rather than coming to me to get it and he said oh do you know what i've been thinking that i've, I've actually been thinking it's about time for a change it's about time for a change we're seeing all these new you know, and there was a penny drop moment there. So I do think that, you know, there is some pros out there, some retailers out there realizing how important it is to understand your, your membership, understand your pro and profile them because, you know, there is an opportunity to sell to them, but you've just got to have the right product for those right, right types of consumers. So, I mean, is this a massive missed opportunity? Not a naive question because <clears throat> I do believe that I've worked with pros in the past, PG professionals. I've worked with the PJ directly on a number of programs in previous roles. I've managed professionals that are in national programs um, and they've helped me a lot and I've learned a lot and been mentored by pros as well. So I believe that you're also a pro, Chris. The, I guess from a non-PJ professional question, I would look from the outside and say, well, pros have a wide range of skill sets and some want to be 
positioning themselves as the kind of go-to at a golf, a private member's golf club for answers to everything. However, it sounds to me like there might be a huge missed opportunity here from a, a fashion retail perspective if that's not their real specialist area. And let's just say, if you add on to that, that I would guess a lot of PGA professionals aren't the most necessarily the most cutting-edge savvy at knowing um, social media influencer type markets and the people who might be going on there and saying, oh, this stuff's really quite cool and I, I'd love a pair of those trainers and blah, blah, blah. So is that a massive missed opportunity? I mean, could we really have non-PJ professionals who actually just run the retail side of things in golf clubs and PJ professionals really focusing on the things that were their specialisms? And in some cases that might be coaching. In other cases, it's, you know, club fittings, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, absolutely. It's an interesting one. I, you know, I started out at a golf club that was where the shop was run by a retail manager and there was golf pros on the side and and then obviously worked in a private club. I worked at Wentworth for a number of years and where it was back, you know, the other way and, and the pros worked in the shop. And so I've seen it from both sides and, and also now being in the, the industry and working for the brand, I see it as well. And I think I'll start by saying there's, there's a lot of very good retailers out there and, and we work with a huge amount of them. They do a phenomenal job and they really understand you know, apparel and footwear and, and how to sell it. But yeah, you're right. I think there's there's an opportunity there. And and what I would say is that as as golf pros, you know, I'm, I'm no longer a, a golf pro. Didn't take, uh, I got my amateur status back. But as a golf pro, when I was going through my PGA training, you know, it was very much focused on, you know, the physiology of golf, the golf swing, you know, business management, uh, repairs, and, and great. And, and, you know, I'm led to believe that that's evolved. And now there's a there's more that can be done in terms of training around this. There's many aspects of the game that you can get involved in. And I was always the biggest proponent of that, which is, hey, I'm a golf pro, but I'm fascinated by marketing. and I'm fascinated by events. I'm fascinated by all the things that go with it. And at the time, I didn't feel like there was anything there for me to kind of venture down that route. And it was more like, how many tournaments have you played? Um, and how many lessons are you giving? Rather than looking into all those facets. And I think if there's enough training out there for, for golf pros to understand retail, and the opportunity that it presents, you know, there is, there's, there, the word is opportunity. I think it's very easy to get sucked into selling hardware. And I'm not just saying this because I work in a, in a, you know, apparel and, and, and soft goods industry, but it's easy for a golf pro to, to align to selling a driver. It's sexy to sell a driver, right? Because you can give someone a lesson and then you can get them on a launch monitor. You can show them how much you can improve their game. And that's safe. That's a, that's a, that's a warm hug for a golf pro to show someone fit how to hit a driver and, and improve with a custom fit there when it comes to apparel and footwear some people just it's just outside their comfort zone and i'm not saying people need to become you know experts where they're you know in front of the customer at all times let me show you this new shirt and let me show you these new shoes but i think going back to the point i made earlier consumer profiling is the key element here understand who your consumer is through the golf club and there's membership groups out there that do a phenomenal job in supporting golf pros, kind of understand that and how they communicate with them through email marketing and through social media. And people should rely on that if they don't feel comfortable with themselves. But the one thing I would say is that when we talk about the retail environment and we talk about uh, the modern day, there's a, there's a word that we use internally called retailtainment. It's not a word we made, it's, it's made up, right? But retailtainment right now is if you look at what's happening in the high street, if you look at what's happening with the move to digital and online, is that the high street and um, bricks and mortar retail has to consider a way that it makes the retail environment more engaging, right? Because right now, 
people are just going to go online and buy things. So what's the engagement? What's the reason for someone to come to a, to a store? And weirdly, transversely, you think about Amazon as a, hopefully I'm allowed to say it, but you think of Amazon as a, as a, as a, as a platform, that is a warehouse online. There is no experience for the consumer whatsoever. It is go on, find what you want, click on it, get it the next day. And we can come on to talking about instant gratification maybe a little bit later. But, you know, there's no experience there. So even the online platform needs to look at how do we give people experience? Because if you go back to it, you know, what did we used to do as, as human beings when we went out to the high street is probably uh, we would go out because we were going out on Friday night or Saturday night and you go out to buy a new shirt or a new dress or whatever it was to go out and, and feel good. There was an experience and we've lost that experience in the high street. Golf pros and golf shops have the ultimate in retailtainment. They have it on a plate, which is a reason to go to the golf shop is to go and hit balls, to go and practice, to go and play golf. And if people can understand that you've got a captive audience, you've got a reason for someone to come down to your destination, then it's the chance to capitalize from an apparel, footwear and hardware point of view. Uh, and I've seen some retail spaces do it. They've put a simulator in the shop Right now you've got consumers in the heart of your retail space, hitting balls, having fun, drinking a beer with their mates. And guess what? They've got to be in and around your product. And there's a chance that they'll have an impulse purchase on something like, I like that shirt. I'm going to go and buy it. So I think the more that golf pros and, re and retail can combine in terms of, I've got a captive audience. I've got a reason for people to come here. They're going to come and hit balls. What can I do to captivate their imagination that they're going to come here anyway and then potentially purchase in my store. And I think the more people can realize that and activate off the back of it, the more they'll see an opportunity in, especially in apparel and footwear, because it's a more of an impulse purchase. I see it, I like it, I buy it, because it's not considered because of the price point. It's just something that I'm going to buy. I've got a disposable income and I like that shirt. I'm going to go and buy it now. And that's an opportunity for golf pros, I would say. So, I mean, all of that makes total sense to me, but yeah, I can't think of how many places where I've witnessed that. So let's just take, um, let's just take for argument's sake, the GB&I market at the moment. Like, just give us a, your gut feel, like what percentage of uh, golf clubs that have a shop and have the potential to do something like you've described, even on a small scale, are actually doing that at the moment? Just, just a ballpark gut feel on that. Gut feel, I, I think... Oh, difficult. I'd like to think that maybe 25% are doing it, have, have kind of captured that and are doing it well. I think there's a lot of golf pros out there that are rightly using their membership groups to help them activate around email and social. But I don't know how many are going into understanding consumer profiling, you know, breaking that out by demographic and by age range, and therefore considering the product that's right for them, and then targeting that. So kind of you know, personalization of targeting messages. So if it's, you know, and it doesn't have to be our brand. You, you, if you think there's a brand that aligns to the membership you've got, then how do you target that to your demographic, to your audience, tell that message, and then put it in front of them at every opportunity. How many people have, you know, a, a putting green or a chipping green and have ever thought about how they activate what they have in store or in that space? How many people have a driving range that they could activate where people get the balls from you know, and tell that story of what's new in store or, you know, an event that you're putting on for that. So there's touch points all around the golf club for green grass retailers to be activating and, and considering 
because um, that's where you've got that captive audience. And, and you'd be amazed at how many of them are waiting to be told that information. So I, I do think there is a percentage out there of people that do it and do it very well. Uh, obviously, time comes into it and, and all those factors we talked about. I've got to do my lessons and I've got to do, you know, run the shop and I've got to, you know, go to meetings and all those things. But I do think with whether you've got engaged assistants or you've got engaged retail staff, allowing them to, to think and consider about how do you engage that audience, how do you connect with them and how do you find touch points that remind people that there is a retail uh, opportunity on site to, to kind of sell product and, you know, and make money because the consumer's there for it. I mean, that's, maybe, I'm, maybe it's just me, but I'm really curious at digging deeper into this because <clears throat> there's things here which are not matching up and therefore creating what seem to be big opportunities that are of things that are left on the table, um, so to speak, within the golf industry. So on one hand, in other conversations, we're talking about career ceilings or sort of lack of progression opportunities and mentoring opportunities for, say, young PGA professionals. And there's quite a lot of people who are talking about that at the moment and saying, well, is that an appealing a role to come in there? And you just end up selling Mars Mars, the classic line that people will talk about. However, what you're describing to me is a scenario where there's probably loads of golf clubs, potentially hundreds, maybe even thousands, where there's actually new people coming into the industry to train as a, an assistant. And during that period of time, they may have the opportunity to become a specialist in what you've just described there, which actually, ironically, is going to prepare them better for potential careers outside of the industry in the future. Because the majority of these people will tend to be younger, they're probably more connected to some of the ways that you can sort of understand and be aware of the fashion opportunities and the new products and things that are out there, but also the way to connect with those audiences and those platforms. And they could become that specialist while also benefiting the club and the pro shop itself. So it seems like there's kind of just two things sitting here and there's a missed opportunity that's sitting right in the middle, which might be quite big. Yeah, and the other thing as well is the if you're a young assistant pro right now, if you can prove that you've you know generated three thousand pounds worth of uh, you know apparel and footwear sales each month to your pros business, surely that's more beneficial when you're looking for your next role versus hey, I've got my own lesson book of X amount of money, but that's my lessons and you know the pro and the, the golf club itself isn't making any money from that, right? Whereas if you become a specialist in how can I raise money for this shop that I'm working at the same time. Surely there's a, there's a huge opportunity there for, for career advancement in that line of work to go and work at a, a big shop like a Silver Mirror or, or you know, on site at somewhere like a Wentworth which has a big shop there and say, hey, yeah, I'm great at my lessons. I know golf, but also this bit of your business, which you're not capitalising on at the moment, me coming in as the young assistant guy, I know this stuff. Let, let me run it because I'm, I'm making money for you and your business there. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's an entrepreneurial skill set that's required by by people to kind of grab that opportunity and maybe they're too scared to kind of propose those things to the head pro or they're too scared to propose it to the manager or whatever it might be but you know I look back when I was at the first club I worked at you know, I started when I was 14 within a year I was like I want to do something myself so I, I asked can I train and do all the club repairs so I went and trained uh, with a guy called Doug at Diamond Golf, always sticks in my memory. And he trained me on, on how to repair golf clubs at 15 years of age. And I ran the club fitting, club repair department now. That was much to actually after a few months realising what have I got myself into here, sat on a November evening trying to cut off victory pride golf grips in minus two degrees um, that have been on the golf clubs for over 20 years and nothing worse. But, you know, that that was an element that then meant that I had a I had a point of difference and when I wanted to become an assistant, I was already proficient at that. 
And then also that kind of led into club fitting because I kind of said, well, I can understand how to repair a golf club. And then it was kind of like, I want to understand more about how to fit a golf club. And I started working at the time with Steve Clark, who was the Mizuno rep. You know, I started fitting for fun and I was churning out sets of Mizuno clubs. And, and all of these things kind of propelled me a little bit to an extent of when um, the opportunity came up. I was kind of well thought of in the industry. Another name check, Rob Miles was at uh, an ASM at the time and he put me forward for the job at Wentworth based on knowing all these other things that I did. And I was successful in getting that role. And I think that's really key is that, you know, step outside and, and make a, uh, make a go of something and say there's an opportunity here and that you've got a captive audience you've got those especially at a members golf club you've got a captive audience understand it engage with it get to know them on a level and understand everything they want and there's there's massive opportunity for not just assistance but just pros in general i think so it sounds like there's not enough awareness and there's not enough education about how to do that there's maybe not enough awareness of this opportunity and then how do you actually access the educator like how do how does someone understand like how does someone get in chris hederman's brain if they're sitting there going they're listening to this and they're going ah he's right actually and we've got like a big enough space here we could do something cool like i like that fashion stuff there but my club maybe maybe they're not going to go for it. how do i position that for them how do i pitch this as an idea and a concept to them who needs to give that let's just call them a young assistant professional who can give them that confidence and enough education to pitch that idea and have a chance of it being successful? Yeah, that's the, the million dollar question. I, I don't profess to have an answer. You'd like to think that the support from the, if we're talking about a golf club environment, you think they would get the support from, uh, you know, a golf pro to James point earlier. It's in the interest of the, the head pro or the club manager that, you know, why not give the opportunity for someone to focus on something that you haven't got the time to focus on to get, you know, in terms of getting the confidence, I think it's very difficult but to, again, something James said earlier, these people are living it. Younger people are living it in terms of, you know, people will turn up to the golf course wearing a pair of Yeezys, okay, as an example, and then get changed into golf shoes. So they're understanding the importance of fashion. They understand the importance of trend, whether it's through social media. I mean, you know, it's one of the things I would say, don't get left behind, you know, and even in my mid-30s, I don't know a huge amount about Twitch and TikTok and all these things, but I have to stay aware of them. So people coming through now will have vastly more knowledge on some of the new modern platforms that are coming through, the new ways of engaging with people. And therefore, they probably have all the skills to do it. It's just about having the, the self-confidence to, to put yourself out there. And, and I'm not saying I, I don't know the answer of who you'd go to. I, I certainly just put myself out there and, and, and was fairly confident around it. But I would encourage people to, to give it a go. Like my, my boss, Andrew Law, always says to me, he calls it stop the bus moments. Give me a moment where you stop the bus and put something in front of me and show me something of how you're going to make my life easier or you're going to make the, the business a better place. And that's what I always do. I prepare something that says, I've seen something, I don't know exactly how it's going to work yet. I'm going to need your support to do it. But I, I see an opportunity and this is what I think it could, could do for all of us. And I think that's enough. If you get people's buy-in, you know, if people don't want to buy into that, then, you know, it says a lot about them. But if you give it the, your, your best effort to say, here's an opportunity, here's what I think we can do. Here's the little bit of research I've done. Here's the knowledge I've got from the real world that I live in. Um, what do you think? And you'd hope that people would, could, you know, sign up to that, I guess. I love that just stop the bus concept there. And that's probably a question that some 
influential people in the industry and leaders in the industry might want to consider that are listening to this podcast and they go, I've got a team of people that work for me. Have I asked them that question? You know, have I posed to them? Can they bring any stop the bus moments to me? And it does lead on nicely to talking about age in some context. Uh, you mentioned your own age there, Chris, and actually we're talking about you know potentially young people that are working as assistant professionals. But you're probably termed as a, a younger head of department in a very in a, obviously a very global brand. And what sort of challenges do you face or have you faced internally and externally in your role? And that, that might be relative to your age, or you felt that they're relative to your age, whether they were justified or not. And maybe later on you realized that wasn't justified. It was just me, you know, being a bit scared of something in my role. And now you've learned that actually. Um, it wasn't something to be scared of. But as you, you talked about there, not just in what you're doing in Adidas now uh, and having such a significant role, but also in your previous roles, you were you were kind of quite young and you were just sort of stepping out the box a little bit and trying new things. Yeah, it's, it, it's a really interesting one. I, do you know what? I, I haven't always given it too much thought in terms of, you know, some people always say to me, oh, you know, it's difficult being younger. I, I do think there's, a, there's a, again, a stereotype going back to where I started I think there's a stereotype around age not just in golf just in industry in general that you can't be in a senior role until you're a certain age and you you look around rooms whether it's in golf or or in every walk of uh, business and you do look and you go well there's a senior or an older generation that are in top jobs and I think that's a I think that's needs addressing big time for a start because to my point I just made there I'm 36 I'm nearly 36 and not even my birthday yet. I'm adding an extra year on. I'm nearly 36 and I'm saying at 35 that I'm not proficient in the world of TikTok, Twitch, all these new age things. And I need to make sure that I'm up to date with it. And, and, you know, I'm lucky enough to work for a brand where I learn all sorts about generational trends. And if you look at some of the trends coming out of Gen Z, it will blow your mind in terms of, what's important to someone that was born after the millennium and, and how they engage and this idea of sustainability and, 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 it, and all these areas, um, real world social and economic areas that we need to be aware of. Now, if I'm not aware of that at 35, and I'm not trying to be ageist here, then what chance has someone got in a senior role at that age, unless they are really making sure they're in touch with all of those things that happen. And therefore, I don't think age should define experience. Um, I mentioned there that I, I was lucky I did my work experience at 13. I was lucky enough to give in a part-time job at 14. I'm not sure if that was legal at the time, but um, we definitely kept that quiet. I worked to cut a shift at the weekend in the pro shop. And by 15, I was, you know, opening the shop at 5.30 in the morning. I did seven years at that golf club, council run, public golf course. It grounded me. It made me understand everything that I need to do in terms of hard work was then lucky enough to go the opposite end of the spectrum and work at Wentworth, which was an unbelievable experience. And shout out to Stephen Gibson, who gave me that opportunity and took a punt on me as a 22, 23-year-old lad that worked a, a muni down the road. And there was this golf club in the size of Wentworth and the history and the privilege of that. And, and he saw something in me and gave me an opportunity. And hopefully I, I repaid him. And you know, that again, I was a young guy going into that role. Still people kind of like, oh, he's very young, you know, to be an assistant at, at Wentworth. And we didn't come from the same background as we normally have assistants at Wentworth. And then kind of fast forward a few years and I, I joined TMAG. And I, again, just made sure that I was making 
the correct decisions for my career to give me a rounded kind of visualization of of the sport of golf i spent a couple of years looking after trade marketing and retail i then went on tour for a couple of years so i spent two years on tour looking after the kind of the players marketing activations uh, then i came back in house and did more around content marketing and then you know I, I was lucky that at 30 31 when the opportunity came up andrew saw saw something in me that wasn't defined by my age but by my experience that I'd worked in retail, I've been a pro, I've been on tour, I've, I understand marketing and then gave me that opportunity. And I think it takes um, senior people, the ability to look beyond a number that's written on from a birth certificate to, to realize that experience overcomes age in a, in a huge amount of ways. And it should be the predominant factor in terms of giving people opportunities. I was one of those lucky people that's given an opportunity. And I like to think that, not only was that something that should be kind of, I suppose, um, looked at positively through what Andrew and Adidas have done for me, but also now something that I then try and live by when I'm hiring people for, for my team. It's all about experience. It's all about people's ability rather than what how old they are. But also just for the industry, like, you know, it needs new thinking at all times. It needs a different approach it needs that people that have come from all sorts of different backgrounds it needs people to because otherwise you're just going to get the same results you know the old cliche again um diminishing results same thing over and over again and so i i, I would say that yes i've had challenges with you know and, and it, in the industry it's challenging because do people take me seriously I, I don't sometimes i i have that concern that people take me seriously because i'm younger People think I'm a bit wet behind the ears because I'm, you know, younger. That I, I don't really know what it's all about. Oh, he, he says all this cool stuff about, mm, you know, changing face of golf and dress codes and new audience and consumer profiling and Gen Z. But don't worry, you don't really know what golf's about because we all know what golf's about at this at this top table, and and that's a challenge. And, and hence why I wanted to get involved and talk today because I think it needs to be brought up that. You know, there's a lot of people, a lot of good young people that have real visions for the future of the game. And I think they need a chance to, to be able to talk about it and be able to put their opinion across and, and help mould it to what it's going to be. Because if we don't, it will continue to be, again, back to my original point, it will continue to be stereotyped the way it's always been stereotyped. Yeah, I think it's something which you're probably uh, too, uh, knowing you slightly are too modest to say as well within that bit. And it's something which Andrew brought up when he did mentoring live a few weeks ago is the um, the ability and, and the keenness for young people coming through to put their hand up and ask questions and say, hey, I want to go and learn that. I want to get involved with that. And Andrew talked about those stop the bus moments but and talked about you and the team and what you guys did there. But from the sounds of, as you've talked through your career there, you've sort of put your hand up and said, hey, I want to learn more about club fitting. I want to learn more about trade marketing or, you know, working when we worked together, you, you were out on tour. And at the time, no one was really doing like player activations through social media on tour. And you sort of an opportunity there and said, hey, let's go and like just film a day in the life on a Monday on the tour truck and let's see what that's about. So um, I think that's a really important thing too, which, which is linking through, you know, you can see it in the way your career has progressed. It, it ties nicely through to what Andrew was saying on the mentoring live around businesses should give people opportunities and you should try and, you know, promote it and everything on, on experience and whether someone's good rather than on a number. But there's also an onus on that person to like, to actually get the experience and put their hand up and say, yeah, like, I, I want that role and, you know, what do I need to do to, to, to learn that? And, you know, what blocks do I need to build my 
have in your case as a marketing director okay i need to know trade marketing i need to know social i need to know retail space you went and built all those blocks so that eventually the, the sort of marketing director house is is in a firm place and it's something which was a real takeaway i think from from me from that Andrew Law conversation a few weeks ago and it's cool that it resonates with, with what your you know how your career has been too is that people will be willing to help I think at the top of businesses but you've got to put your hand up right you, you know particularly as a younger person you've got to say hey I don't know about this can you help me here and, and uh, yeah I guess just as, as a question to formulate into that like how is your as somebody that has put their hand up throughout the career and say hey I want to learn about these various bits and bobs How's the reception or how has your reception been to that? Have people been, cool, I'll show you that and I'll, I'll teach you how to build clubs and I'll teach you how to do trade marketing or have you found a resistance as someone that uh, has ambition, <laughs> for want of a better phrase, uh, to, you know, from the, the old grizzly people saying, get back in your box and just get back to your club ripping? Yeah, I think there's, it's, being honest, I think most people are taken aback by by someone that does put their hand up. So I want to, you know, I, you know, it takes a lot of confidence to do that, but they respect that and they want that because there's so few people that do. I think um, that they're kind of taken aback. Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. I'd love to love to help you with that. Or I'd love to No, that makes a lot of sense. You know, we're all <laughs> we're after someone that wants to go and sit out there and rip grips off for, for three hours long in the freezing cold because no one else wants to do it. Well, I'll do it, but I want to show you why I want it. So I think I, I don't think I've ever met any um, resistance from anyone that I've gone to a, a senior level. I'm doing the inverted commas here because. You know, I don't like the idea of seniority and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But anyone that I've gone to that I've said, this is what I'd like to do and this is where I'd like your help, have always been very responsive to it. And I think most people are looking for that to come to them. The only, funnily enough, the only thing you get is your peer group are the actual the challenge because they're like, oh, look at, look at this person, you know, trying to break out from the norm. And, and, and actually the challenge is your peer group because they, they just want to do maybe what you've had the, the confidence to step up and do but they're frustrated that they haven't done it. And, and I think that's where I found I've always had more of an issue at people that I'm working alongside saying, oh, you know, oh, yeah, you're teacher's pet or, you know, you're this. And I'm like, well, no, I'm not. I just I just put myself out there. Uh, and maybe if you put yourself out there, you'd be experiencing the same thing. So I hope that doesn't come across as entitled or, or in any way kind of condescending. But, you know, I think it takes a confident approach, be assertive, put your hand up, if you get knockbacks, you're going to get knockbacks, but don't be disheartened by it. And if, if other people are giving you a bit of grief and throwing a bit of shade on you, it's because A, they're jealous or B, they're annoyed they didn't do it themselves. Yeah, no, I think that's that's spot on. I think I've, I've found the same whenever I've known someone like yourself or, or you know, if I've ever put my hand up and say, hey, I want to learn more, people have been receptive to do it. Everyone's very willing to help because ultimately it's, a, it's almost like an altruistic thing. People feel good about, about helping others. Um, I have conversations a lot with people in my team, people that, that want to get into golf or have got into golf at a more junior level. And they're sort of saying, well, oh, well, I've done this and I've run this channel for this company for so long. And, you know, why aren't people approaching me for job offers or why haven't I been promoted internally or what, you know, whatever else. And you just go back to the question of what have you done to, to deserve that promotion? You know, what have you done to find that new job? They don't come to you. They don't, you know, you, you were um, very fortunate with timing, as you said, with the tailor-made Adidas split, that you were in the right position at the right time. But you wouldn't have been in that position with the uh, the confidence that Andrew had in you and the business had in you had you not worked your ass off to get there, right? Like that, you, you don't you don't fall into those positions purely by by luck and by by circumstance. Like timing's a part of it, but it would have been just as easy for for them at the time to say, hey, you know what, Chris, he hasn't got this stuff yet. We're going to bring in a 
marketing director that's got 20 years of experience working in, you know, green grass retail for pick a name, one of the stalwarts of, you know, clothing in the golf industry. And they're going to come and run Adidas. And it's, it's to their credit and to your credit that, like, you, you force their hand almost by being good at your job and have, putting your hand up and saying, yeah, I'll take that on. I'll, I'll have a go at that. And, you know, for, from the outside looking in now, doing a very good job with it. Thanks, mate. You can pay me for that later on. <laughs> Chris, the, um, the, this has been a fascinating part of the discussion and I've just sort of enjoyed sitting quietly listening to this bit because there's so many things that are coming out here which we keep hearing from people that are within the golf industry and within the gather community. One of the key themes is about leaders who are lifting people up, which is great to hear and any good examples of that just you know fill you with so much more optimism and confidence about the future of the industry. You also mentioned about the imposter syndrome to an extent at some point early on, but I think you know pretty much anyone who is um, transparent and open will admit that they have that themselves at various points throughout their career in whatever field that they're in. But what I'm hearing from you today, Chris, is put your hand up despite imposter syndrome because you just never quite know where that might lead to. Um, the, the tricky question always is, and this is one we do hear frequently, there are many people who do feel a bit trapped in certain areas or roles or organizations, golf clubs within the industry, and they don't feel that there is the support for them to be lifted up in some of the ways that you've been able to be and that, that each of us has. I've been in positions where I definitely wasn't being given the opportunity or the support to be lifted up. One, that's a difficult one, but one solution is to speak to people that you respect, seek out people at companies and clubs and organizations that you think have a cool culture. And you know, you've heard rumors that, well, that's quite a good manager, quite a good leader, and then speak to people and just keep speaking to people. And from a personal perspective, and, and Adam and, and James and Mike have the same, you know, speaking to a lot of people who've found out about Gather in the last eight, nine months, and just having that conversation about what they do, like the amount I've learned about different perspectives, um, not, you know, there's so many different perspectives in the golf industry, which is great. There's a lot of diverse thinking. There's huge, as we've talked about today, there's a huge number of missed opportunities, which is amazing because then it means if people see them and actually do something about them, we can be thriving even more than we already are. So it's, it's got to just be a case of having those conversations with people. And it might seem like, you know, if I wasn't doing gather, I wouldn't have had anywhere near this many conversations, but now I can sort of be such an advocate for it. Like just seek people out and make the time to do it. Especially now, you know, we are probably spending less time traveling. So whatever time you're spending traveling, like have a 15 minute conversation. Yeah, hundred um, percent. And, and I'm guilty of that. It's one of the reasons that I wanted to, somehow be a part of this in, in a very small way uh, is because, hey, if, if, if I can talk to any person out there, whatever age, doesn't have to be a young person, if I can talk to anyone and give them an insight or give them a, a thought or give them a, a process or help them, you know, create a stop the bus moment, then I'm happy to do it. Like, I think that going back to my point is, and to what James was saying earlier, as human beings, we like it when people want to, you know, talk to us and, and know and, and gain our experience. And, and it's almost, you know, a little bit of a, an ego thing, right? Where if someone says, I'd love to know what you think on this. And be, oh, really? Okay. Um, yeah. So I don't think we do enough of it. And that's because we've all got busy lives and we've all got busy jobs. But hey, if, if I can help anyone, or I'm sure all of us talking on this can help each other in understanding where if someone's got a specific interest in, in what we've talked about today or anything to do with kind of 
the you know golf marketing or apparel footwear you know i'd i'd love to talk to anyone about my as you can see, as you can tell I, i'm i don't mind talking i can listen as well but um i would i would happily share any of my experiences or knowledge with anyone that's looking for that support Awesome. And one of the things with, with Gather, which I think we've all found a little bit when people have spoken to us is, and it's a question we get all the time and the industry tackles all the time, like, what is it you want to fix? How do you fix it? You know, what's the problems and all these sorts of things? Um, one, and I use this as an example a lot when I talk to people around how disruption can happen, how change can happen, is that you don't necessarily need to have all the solutions. You just need to sort of um, get the train on the right tracks. And we touched on it early on and talking about Adidas and, and the hoodie with the Tilhassel at the PGA at Wentworth and how that snowballed. And I'd just love to get your um, sort of opinion from from inside the the sort of the business point of view of of what that strategy looked like, how how it played out and sort of what the end goal was. Because from again, from the outside looking in, and again, this is why I use it as an example. I always say to people, look, I'm pretty sure Adidas weren't saying that they wanted X and Y golf club to fall out and they wanted to rewrite you know, the rule book at certain golf clubs and they had all this thing. They went, hey, this piece of clothing is quite cool. That guy looks quite good in it. And if it starts a conversation, then great. And that to me is like the epitome of being a disruptor, right? You're not, you don't need to have all the answers, but you start the conversation. Is that similar to how it looks on the inside, or did you have a uh, a one man plan to to rewrite golf club constitutions and uh, you know rip up the rule books? Oh yeah, I'm going to reveal the the, the secrets of, of Hoodie Gate right here. Yeah, listen, it, it's exactly as you said it. Who would who would we be to try and kind of genuinely as a brand rewrite dress codes? That certainly wasn't our intention. What we wanted to do, to your point, is disrupt the market and hey, say hey. If one of the best, world's best golfers can play at one of the most prestigious golf clubs in the, you know, the signature event on the European Tour wearing one, what does that mean for every other golf club around the country? Now, I will be honest, I'll let you into a little secret. We, the stars aligned for us, absolutely. And uh, I've got to be honest and say this wasn't a plan that was planned six months in advance. This was a plan that was probably planned six days in advance of the event. Um, Neil Raymond, our sports marketing uh, manager who does an amazing job with the players and has a very very good relationship with people like Tyrrell we were at a shoot together and, and um, Neil was wearing one of the hoodies and Tyrrell was like can you can you wear that for golf she was like yeah absolutely Neil was like absolutely yeah and so uh, Neil went away and, and got him some and, and then we started a conversation and we said what if we got him to wear it you know in a week's time at the BMW so and that conversation started and we spoke to his, his management and made sure that, that was all okay Tyrrell loved it above all he was comfortable in it. It's functional. Um, he liked it as a style, but it was functional. It had stretch and everything. And all we're talking about here is an extra bit of material around the back of the neck. It's not crazy stuff, right? But yeah, the stars aligned for us. If he had shot 76 first day, no one would have even seen it. And obviously we had a plan in place to then activate it in terms of his social media channels and kind of really ramp it up. And it just so happened that he went on to play day after day. And then we obviously planned for him to wear a different colour. So it was just a repetitive story. It wasn't a one and done because we really wanted to ram home that message. And then what followed was absolute insanity in terms of just what it created. I have to be honest, there was a moment which which will always stick with me. You know, there was a few people in the industry texting me saying, what have you done here? This is unbelievable. I had retailers texting me saying, I can't thank you enough. Not only have we sold out of all of our Adidas hoodies, we've sold out of every hoodie from every brand and we've sold out of all of our t-shirts, all of our progressive apparel. Like this is unbelievable. This is exactly what we needed. 
and, and I was probably a little bit um, getting ahead of myself and drinking my own Kool-Aid a little bit. And then one of my mates who I, I lived with for a number of years, who's not a golfer and has never been a golfer, who was just randomly maybe thinking about getting into golf, watching the BMW, sent me a message saying, why does Tyrrell Hatton dress like I do on a Sunday morning? And, and, and that moment in time, I was like, I just came back down to earth with a bump in reality of, you know, someone from outside looking in. It's like, well, why is this, you know, what, what's happening in golf? Again, going back, he's not used to seeing that in golf because he's used to the Argyle sweater and the, the crazy trousers. So that was a moment where it kind of brought it all back down to earth for me. But ultimately, we touched a nerve, right? We, we stimulated a nerve and, and we got a response. And some of the responses were great. And, and I'm not going to lie, there was a time when we thought about, do we actually just turn up to some of these golf courses that say, well, Tyrrell Hatton would not be allowed to wear his hoodie at our golf course. We were so tempted to turn up with Tyrrell on, in their shop and film that and say, oh, I think he was world number seven at the time or something. We've got BMW champion, world number seven. Are you going to turn him down for a green fee? Like, and just see what <laughs> can, happens. Can he have a knock? <laughs> yeah, so um, which would have been fun, but probably would have stirred the pot too much. And you won't be surprised that Tyrrell will be back again this September uh, with a new hoodie and we'll continue to tell that story. But it's not just hoods. And, and, and that's my would be my point is the hoodie. That's just a product. That's a one of many products, right? And it's just got an extra bit of material around your neck. And what we're saying is you, if you don't wear hoodies, that doesn't mean that you're not cool. If you don't wear cuff trousers, that doesn't mean you're not cool. Everyone has a style or a look that they like. All we're saying is embrace it. If you like wearing a polo shirt tucked in with a pair of trousers and a belt and a pair of tour-specific golf shoes, absolutely, you go for it. That is a great look for golf. However, if you like to wear your shirt untucked and you like to wear shorts with a pocket on the side and no socks with a, with a shoe, that's also cool as well. And that's also okay. What we don't want or what we don't like is someone saying, oh, you can't wear that colour sock or you can't wear that. That is the issue. So just let people wear what they want. If you took away every dress code in the game tomorrow, what would happen? Let me tell you, no one would turn up in jean shorts and a string vest tomorrow because people dress, human beings, we dress for the occasion. If you go out for dinner with your partner, you, would, you wouldn't wear your, what you'd wear for, you wouldn't wear pyjamas. You would wear something that makes you feel appropriate for dinner. It's the same with golf. People will wear what they're comfortable in and what they think is appropriate and looks good. And I think that's what we've got to get to is just allow people to feel comfortable in expressing themselves and feeling comfortable in their own skin with whatever they're wearing. If that means uh, abolishing all dress codes, then so be it. I, I just think we're, we're not putting enough trust in ourselves in terms of what people would dress to play golf in. Yeah, I hope you told your mate that Terrell Hatton was also wearing what he wears on a Sunday. He just happened to be probably earning a little bit more income Absolutely. on that particular Sunday because he was wearing a cape instead of a hoodie. Um, so, no, I, I mean, I just quick point for me, like, I love the hoodie thing. And the main reason I love it is not because hoodies are comfortable, but also the connotations that hoodies have in uh, wider society are so unfair. And, it's, and it is a big issue, and particularly in some cities as well, even in, in the backyard, you know, not that far from where Tyrrell was wearing them we're kind of joking about how bad it is in the, the golf industry and how that's received, but actually it's a great thing because it should be breaking down those stereotypes back to what you said at the beginning. Absolutely. Absolutely. So yeah, Guys, he will be, uh, he'll be back. 
Yeah, one thing I really liked by the way you guys did that as well is that you committed to it for the week. Like we see it a lot with brands where, yeah, not to not to call out any particular brand, but Justin Thomas's previous clothing manufacturer for the Open for a couple of years would put him in a, a cardigan and a tie, like for the Thursday, and then he'd go out and shoot seventy eight, and you wouldn't see it again. And it's like, so why were you doing that? Like, what? You know, there wasn't a message here. Yeah, it wasn't functional to your point about the hoodies. Like, you're doing it as some sort of like, hey, we want to be cool, but we don't want to lean too much into it because we're not going to put him in for four days. We do it just enough to cause a bit of a marketing buzz. And I think that's the difference between like being disruptive and having like a hashtag campaign of like, oh, do you see Justin Thomas in a tie for one day? And you know, Ricky Fowler does it a lot in the Hawaiian swing in at the start of the year, and you'll see him in some funky clothing for a couple of days, but then the rest of the year is back to normal. It's like you either need to lean into these things and, and, and commit to them, and that's how you get some disruption and change, or it's seen for what it is, which is a, a marketing money grab in a lot of cases. And I think to your credit, that's why the Adidas one wasn't seen as a, a marketing ploy. It was seen as a, a you know a, a statement, for want of a better phrase, on, on apparel. Yeah, I think, and you touched on a really interesting one there, James, and I, I don't want to sound like a broken record, but if you go back a few years and look what happened when Jordan Spieth, Justin Thomas, Ricky Fowler, I would think it was, forgive me if I got the wrong people, and I, I think it was, um, oh, Smiley Kaufman. Smiley Kaufman. You know, they're all playing yeah. in swim shorts with no, sh- with no shoes on, and they're and that was like whoa what what's going on people are playing golf without shoes on and they haven't got a top on they're having so much fun and yet they come back to golf straight back to being a robot straight back to hat on and, and you could argue that's that they're you know that's obviously in their business mode they're putting on their golf attire their suit and tie for the want of another analogy but it is amazing what people are like in real life when they're relaxed and they're you know wanting to be themselves versus when it's serious, I have to conform to this look. Um, and that's, again, just amazing me with young people. And I had it in, <laughs> I had it recently. I was playing in a golf day. I played at Fox Hills again, who have a very relaxed dress code. Great. And I had a Palace Adidas Golf. It's a t-shirt and shorts. And, and I had uh, some of our shoes on. I had uh, Stan Smith shoes on. And a, a friend of mine that's worked in the industry a long time, he turned up, hadn't seen him for a while. And he was like, oh, are you going to the gym quickly before, before golf? And I was like, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm wearing, I'm, this is what I'm wearing. He's like, oh, okay, okay, cool. And I, I genuinely watched him take off a pair of, of Adidas trainers and, and he had like a, a zip top on from, I can't remember where it was from. And then like he got ready for golf in what he saw as golf attire. And he was actually playing with my wife in the group behind. And she said he turned to her after a few holes and was like, oh my God, Chris has actually worn that on the golf course. And she was like, yeah, like he, that's, that's his thing. That's what he'll wear. Like, you know, he's pushing boundaries, but he's, you know, he's like, and I spoke to him afterwards and I said, why is that so shocking that, you know, that I've worn something that I feel comfortable in? And he's like, well, I just, you know, I just, and I was like, look at you, mate. I was like, no disrespect, but look at you. You got changed out of what you, you feel comfortable in and you put on golf uniform with like a vest and a zip and, a, you know, your socks pulled up a little bit and you, you, and yet you took all the stuff off that you wear in everyday life that represents you. Why, why do you do that? He's like, do you know what? I've never thought about it like that. I don't know why I do that. And, and it was just a moment where you do realise that people are conforming to what they've always done or what they've always been told. When you go on holiday to somewhere in a really sunny place and you're playing on a golf course somewhere in a sunny country, 
can you think of anything that's like more joyful than walking barefoot around a nice grass golf course? I mean, obviously not in a desert course, but you understand. I mean, and you know, Augustine Pisa, who we had on way back in the, the first podcast, one of the projects he's involved with is something called Wellness Golf. And it, you know, it's um, it's in a fairly upmarket holiday destination, but they're now trying to replicate that in other places. And it's literally uh, a small plot where there's a number of different par three holes that all cross over each other. So there's multiple playing options, multiple teeing options, but you play it with barefoot as well. And it's like, it's like just sort of being at one with nature. I believe it's somewhere in Mexico or somewhere, somewhere in South America and it's next to Inca trails or something like that. But you know, the, the concept itself is a lovely one. And yeah, we just seem to be so against it. Yeah, I mean, what if we were to create, you know, uh, uh, me and, and Adam talk about this, like we're massive Goat Hill Park fans and uh, and in the US, but what if we were to create anti-golf clubs? Just just to be really, I suppose, disruptive. What if we had an anti-golf club that was that was purely like, there is no dress code, you can wear what you want, you can be as relaxed as you want, there is no rules on that, you, you don't have to have a handicap. Like, what would that community look like? And, you know, have a vision of and then be able to share that with people say, look, this is what we did. We took all the rules away and we made it as open and collaborative and community based as we could. And these were the results. So, like, don't be afraid of it. Don't be scared of it, because actually, if you can create an environment where people feel comfortable and they can be, create social um, links, family, you know, all those things, give people a reason to get involved in that stuff. You know, I'm you know, I'm a dad i've got young daughter and i've got another one on the way and, and you know part of me is like i don't have the time to play golf as i used to unless i'm invited to the things in the industry but if you gave me a community space where i could make my family a part of it i'd be there like a shot i'd absolutely be there like a shot and that that for me is the future is how do you create those spaces where people feel encouraged to take up the game and, and feel comfortable with it yeah absolutely i think we've seen it this um past couple of years with the guy down at sundale heath you know i'm not a sort of golf management aficionado or, uh, you know, don't know brilliantly about the business world of that. But by all accounts from the outside looking in, a lot of people are going, hey, that's great. Yeah, it's a shorter golf course. People are liking, you know, they don't need to spend four hours out there. They're doing a good job of the junior academy down there. I think there's still a, um, some people are unsure whether it's a, you know, a posh golf because it says Sunningdale or whether it's something for, for teenagers and youngsters to get into the game. But just by there being something which seems a little bit more in the community, um, you know, the, the word of mouth has is, is flown around the industry that it's somewhere that people at least want to go and see, right? Even if it's not perfect for, for what they want in their game, just by it not being a par 72, 7,000 yard golf course where you have to wear a shirt and tie after seven o'clock, it's already created interest. So how amazing would it be if there was more of those places and they push the boundary even further? Absolutely. Yeah, and I think, you know, coming back to the Goat Hill thing, I'm glad you mentioned that, Chris, because very conscious of time, we've, we've, you've, it's been brilliant having this chat, and I've loved how we've gone deep into some of these topics, and I, I sense that we could continue to do so, uh, given the time, but just coming back, it sort of round things off, coming back full circle to one of the biggest frustrations that we discussed back at the start, about, you know, predominantly private clubs, if we're being honest, having crazy dress code restrictions, and it's, it's, we've touched on it quite a lot. Do you think that the the mass golfer market actually now the hundreds of thousands of golfers who are not club members, and that you know this is something that's come up as a recurring topic in the last few months in gather conversations. It's also come up in individual conversations, and it's perhaps a realization that even although gather has has started life as a golf industry community of people who want to see positive change, that actually 
the golf industry itself is the, is the the minority market, and that there's this growing golfer market out there. There's many golf club managers, people who work in a lot of private golf clubs, that are members of the Gala community, but there's hundreds of thousands of people who don't prescribe to the traditional norms. They're not a member of the golf club. They don't see things the same way. They don't buy the traditional golf brands. They're looking at independent brands. They want to dress different ways. They want to listen to different music. They want to digest golf in a different way. They're maybe the the mass golf market, and we're actually the outsiders looking in. Yeah, um, we would... I would say that is very much the case. Like I mentioned earlier, we talked about the network. We believe in our research that the, the one part of the network that we call dabblers and potentials. So the dabblers are the, the people that play now and again, not members of golf clubs, might go on a, a trip away with friends and play. And then they'll pick up, if they get invited to the weekend, I'll play in golf. Oh yeah, I'll play a bit of golf. I'll grab my clubs and come play with you. Those dabblers uh, outnumber the core. They outnumber the core quite comfortably. When you add potentials in, Potentials of people that have engaged with golf in some way. So that's they watched the Ryder Cup or they've been to the BMW at Wentworth or they've they've played a bit of crazy golf and thought, oh, this is quite cool. This is quite, you know, it gives me a bit of a rush when I hole a putt. That potentials audience is double the size of the dabblers audience. So, you know, when you when you put dabblers and potentials together, yeah, from our research, they absolutely outnumber the core audience. Now you've got to then make that relevant to the commercial opportunity in terms of how often they're purchasing and how often they purchase for golf. Of course, that that's all relevant. But yeah, I would say that there is so many more people out there that would give golf a go if they had a venue or a format or a, and, you know, I'm not talking about, oh, let's make, you know, let's make bigger cups and let's use bigger heads on golf clubs. It's not, it's not about that. It's not about changing the game. It's just about changing the, the opportunity to entry for me. You know, a golf club is a scary place to go for a first time because, again, going back to stereotypes and going back to all the things we discussed, I'm pretty sure I've heard somewhere that you can't wear your hat in here. You know, people look down their nose at you. You've got to be a certain standing. You've got to be a... Me- You've got to have a handicap. All these things are going through people's brains. So if you said, oh, come and have a taster session at the, at the golf club, there's already a preconceived idea of, do I really want to go to a golf club where I'm probably going to get told off if I'm wearing the wrong color trousers? So I, I do think that's why it's important to create spaces, communities where people feel comfortable to give it a go and not be embarrassed to give it a go or be judged for what they're wearing. And yeah, there is a huge untapped audience out there, you know, and, and I've seen people getting into kind of, crazy golf and turning it into adventure golf and, and people having that. And if you go to look at what top golf's done, but not just top golf, top tracer and the range experience. I talked to retailers, the, the good retailer I talked to, and he said to me recently, he's like, I cannot tell you the difference on the driving range. He's got a top tracer driving range. He's like, I cannot tell you the difference in the demographic in the last two, three years. He said, I've got students that come down on a Friday evening or a Tuesday morning and just hit balls and have fun and they play the games on top tracer. And he said, I've never seen that in my life. Never been aware of them. Maybe he said, I'm more in tune that this is happening all around me. But he said, it's changing, Chris. It's absolutely, and now I see it. And now I understand I need to change my offering to match it. Um, And it's great that they're coming. And I think more people like him embrace that, that see the opportunity in that is where it will help the game evolve. But it's going to take a lot of, it's going to take a a groundswell to your point. It's going to take a huge amount of people realizing that the, there's a bigger bigger network out there for us to appeal to. Yeah, and you know, final thought for, from my side, which is nice to feel uh, nice to finish on a positive and optimistic note for change when we're talking the golf industry, is that 
I really love that analogy of, hey, you know, for the sake of very, very crude maths, we've got a million core golfers, but there's a million other dabblers and then there's two million potentials. Well, what if we as an industry said, hey, you know what, we're going to focus on those three million non-core golfers because their five pound note is the same as the core golfers five pound note. And, you know, stats going back for years will tell us that people only buy a set of new irons every two, three, four years, whatever the current figure is. So if the core golfers only buying a set of irons every three years, well, what about these dabblers and potentials? Like if there's twice the market there, why shouldn't and wouldn't and doesn't the industry start looking at ways to, to monetize those um, those people? And by their very nature, they don't want stuffy golf club stuff. They don't want plus fours and, you know, Argyle sweaters to Chris's point. So there's, there's some optimism here that, you know, for, for change to happen, there needs to be a bit of a commercial incentive to do so. And if these big companies start potentializing and realizing in a way that Adidas has this audience which exists, which doesn't fit into the nice bucket of traditional golfer, we might inadvertently see change in the core traditional golf markets um, led by targeted marketing to non-core golfers, which would be an amazing place to be. Yeah, great final point, James. And I do hope internally you're calling them dazzlers, dabblers. I presume that is obvious. <laughs> I mean, uh, but Chris, uh, I can't really say enough thanks for you today. You spent a lot of time with us. More importantly, we've dug into some really important topics here. You've shared a lot of fantastic insights and there's some key points that have come out, which we're def- we're going to do our absolute best to try and lift these key learnings out and key pieces of advice out for the listeners and then out to the wider gather membership and then hopefully out to the wider golf industry. It's fantastic to have people like you who think this way and are prepared to speak up and, and see what we can do to move things forward. And congratulations on all the, the work that you and the team at Adidas are already doing um, to try and move these areas forward. So it's inspirational in many ways. And I'm sure that there's people in the industry and people that are listening to this that will feel the same way. So thank you for, for spending the time. Um, final word from you. Is there any final message that you want to leave to the listeners or anything you suggest that they should have a look at or check out or anything like that? No, I just say thank you for giving me the opportunity. It felt good to, to get some of these things off my chest that have been building up over a long period of time in the golf industry. And I commend everyone within this setup and what they're doing to maybe make a difference and, and make a change. Like I would say is for everyone out there, keep fighting the good fight. If you've got ideas, as we've said, put your hand up because the industry needs them. And I think if enough people can can share that thinking and can make a difference, then maybe some of these stereotypes can be broken down where we can change the face of golf as it's known bit by bit step by step uh, and and hopefully we can appeal to, to this new audience that that wants to to, to try it in a new way and, and do things slightly differently fantastic james chris it's been a pleasure everybody keep putting your hand up things can move forward thank you very much